0: Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in.
1: You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I'd love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at ThoughtsFromAPage. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Joey Heartstone about his debut novel, The Local. Joey is a film and television writer. He has written two feature films, LBJ and Shock and Awe, which were both directed by Rob Reiner. He wrote on the first two seasons of the legal drama The Good Fight and he is currently a writer on the Showtime series Your Honor. Joey lives in Los Angeles with his family. The local is on my summer reading list, which is linked in this episode's show notes. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
2: I'm Alison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. I'm great. How are you doing?
1: I'm great as well, and I'm really excited to talk about The Local. I thought it was such a fun read, and I always try to pick up books that are set in Texas, so that particularly appealed to me about this one.
2: Oh, cool. I'm glad you liked it.
1: Well, why don't we start out with you telling me a little bit about The Local for those that won't have read it yet.
2: Sure. So The Local is set in an East Texas town called Marshall, Texas, And this town about 20 years ago became kind of the epicenter of intellectual property law in the United States. Um, There are more patent litigation lawsuits in this little Texas town than anywhere else in the country. And it basically happened because a judge, a federal judge changed the rules of his courtroom to entice people to sue for patent infringement there. And what happened was there were lots of Major corporations were sued here, and they were represented by big out-of-town legal teams, but they had trouble connecting with the jurors. So they started hiring local counsel to join the team and to really be sort of the conduit between these out-of-town defendants and these local juries, and they became a pivotal part of of this process. And so when I heard about this town, and, and in particular this profession, I really thought I had a good character and a good setting for a story.
1: It's just fascinating to me. And I actually practiced law for a long time here in Houston. I don't anymore, obviously, because I'm doing all of this. And I was familiar with the Eastern District of Texas, but I wasn't really as familiar with the patent aspects of it. I mean, I'd heard about it, but I mentioned it to my husband, who's also a lawyer. And he's like, oh, yes. And every time I say Marshall, it doesn't ring a bell. But then I say the Eastern District. and He's like, oh, yes, the patent place. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just kind of funny that it is definitely something that is well known these days.
2: Yeah, there's like there's a few pieces that people who have heard of it, maybe they they heard a an NPR piece or they saw a John Oliver report on it, but it, but it's largely a pretty well-kept secret and and I think that's somewhat by design.
1: Absolutely. Well, tell me how you came across this story. Was it on John Oliver, which I love by the way?
2: I do too. Um no, I actually have a friend from college named Nathan Speed who is an intellectual property lawyer and he he works in Boston, but he came to LA for uh, deposition and he and I were getting drinks. And he told me that his next stop was this little town in East Texas. And I said, "What? Is, well, how does your business take you there? And he started to tell me all the stories and how frequently he goes there. And I think we spent probably two or three hours and I just kept peppering him with questions because I knew this was fertile ground for a story.
1: Absolutely. Well, what about trying to set a murder there instead of a patent case. So how did all of that come about for you? How did you decide to set it in Texas, in Marshall? And then how did you unfold your story?
2: Yeah, I spent a couple of years just sort of stewing on this story. And I really, my first objective was, I want to set this in the world of patent law. And and I, I learned more about patent law. I, read about patent lawsuits. And after a couple of years, I just finally threw my hands up and I thought, I'm not sure I can make a, a patent litigation case compelling <laughs> enough for a whole story. So I, I thought, okay, let's let's loosen up the thinking here. If someone dies, if someone is killed, will that make it a more compelling story? And then I really liked the idea of taking a patent lawyer and making him a criminal defense lawyer in a field of law that he's never practiced. I just had to find a believable enough reason that, that he might do that. Uh, but once I did that, the story really started to come together rather quickly. And, and, and I kind of had an outline within a couple of months.
1: I figured that's probably what had happened because as I was reading and I was thinking, I don't know that you could make a patent case, a page turner like this story was. So you had yeah. to kind of figure out some way to set it there and have all of that information relayed, but not have it be the center of the case.
2: Yeah, I was thinking about the firm, and I thought, he's a tax lawyer. That's really interesting, but he's a tax lawyer for the mob, and they're killing lawyers, so it's not really about tax laws.
1: Well, in trying to make all of that patent law information digestible for the reader, that must have been difficult as well.
2: It was. I think I think I may benefit um, from the fact that I don't know much about it, so um, I think I'm a decent interpreter because my knowledge is not so complicated that it would be difficult for a layperson to understand because I'm a layperson. So I did speak with a, a fair amount of intellectual property lawyers, but um, I have n- I've never gone to law school. I'm not a lawyer. So my understanding kind of maxes out at a certain level. And I, and I just needed to know enough so that I could set the story here and then move into criminal law and murder and all that other good stuff.
1: The stuff that's going to make the pages fly by. Exactly. Well, what about the inspiration for James Euchre and Amir Zawar? I was so curious as I was reading how you came up with their characters and their identities.
2: Yeah. So the main character is James Euchre. And I wanted somebody who was from this town because that's important as a local uh, council there. But he actually has ties to more of the Dallas area. So I wanted him to have just a little hint of an outsider, though his mom is from this town. And then I wanted him to be a really flawed person that, that, is very charismatic and has the qualities that one would want if their primary job was to ingratiate themselves to strangers on a jury or neighbors on a jury. But I wanted him to kind of have um, some secrets and some things that were really um, painful in his past that he was trying to cover up. But through the course of the story, he started to have to revisit those. And then the client, Amir Zawar, uh, because the whole idea of this venue is it's really difficult to be an outsider. And then you go from patent litigation to criminal defense, and it becomes even more so. So this is a town that where slavery and segregation are part of its past. And so I wanted the client to be a person of color, but I wanted them to be as much of an outsider as possible. So he's a Pakistani-American, second generation. He's from New York City, where his father uh, immigrated to when he was, when he was a teenager, And then he works in Silicon Valley, so he's from the places that I imagined people in this small Texas town would definitely consider an outsider. So that that was sort of the primary objective with that character—to make James's job as difficult as possible.
1: Amir is not very likable, which I thought was an interesting choice. And as I started reading, I was kind of curious about that, but as it played out, it worked very well. But I thought that was an interesting choice on your part.
2: Yeah, it's funny. Uh, The reception of that character has been. Different than I anticipated, and I'm the the idea of a likable character is always a bit perplexing because I think we all have different qualities of what we like in somebody. For this character, one thing that I wanted was he had I knew I knew he had to be an impediment to his own case, so he and his lawyer were going to have a very difficult time working together. And I, I yeah, A Few Good Men is one of my favorite movies, and, and there's there's a story where you have a lawyer who has one objective and the client who just refuses because he's got his own priorities. And so I, I wanted something like that. And so because of that, because he is an impediment to his own case and to the hero's journey, I, I think he he is seen it as, as more unlikable. But he also, he voices some of the objections that I think people should have to the criminal justice system or to the Eastern District of Texas in general and, and the patent litigation there. So he's this guy who has... Uh, a growing company. And he's frustrated that he's getting sued in this place that he's never heard of. And and any CEO or any person who gets sued in the, in this venue is, is similarly frustrated. And, and this guy's life's work is being threatened. And then he's accused of murder, and he claims he's innocent. And if he is, then I imagine that that would be a similarly frustrating experience as well. And so He's certainly not happy to be in this town. And I think he resents this place. So he sort of says the quiet parts out loud. So it's interesting because he is, he's certainly unlikable to the people in the town and he's frustrating for the hero. Uh, but, I, but he does have my sympathy because he has been put in some rather unfair circumstances and he knows it.
1: I agree completely. And I did grow to understand him better the longer I read. I agree with what you're saying that I would not want to be put in the situation he was but he just doesn't handle it very well. and so I think that was kind of the part that makes him less likable because you're like, come on, like just definitely hold it in a little bit. but you know it's hard to hold it in in those situations and I get that and if I had been put in that situation, I could very well respond the same way.
2: yes that's his his temper is a little bit of, of one of his flaws and 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 yeah, and he's younger than some of our other characters who so might be a little bit more impulsive and and he's certainly not a, a perfect human being, but that that usually helps to complicate a criminal defense case.
1: Well, yes, you don't want the passive, very nice, quiet person because that's not going to make a very good story. Sure, exactly. Well, what about the inspiration for his company, Medallion? That is such an interesting topic these days with Uber and Lyft really taking away a lot of the business from cabs, especially in large cities like New York City. And I have recently seen that Uber is now incorporating cabs into part of their app. And so I was kind of curious with Medallion where that idea came from and how you developed it.
2: Yeah, I saw that story too. I thought we gotta get this book out soon. Um Well
1: it actually makes your book really timely, you know?
2: Yeah. What actually happened was I I believe there was a, a series that was done in the New York Times maybe eight years ago, ten years ago, and it was it focused on the taxi medallions in the city and the drivers who were taking out these incredibly large loans so that they could own these medallions because the medallions kept appreciating in value and they were seen as as essentially an asset that you could own but they were taking out these interest only loans and these medallions ballooned to be worth over a million dollars and then the, when everything when the economy crashed so too did the value of these medallions by more than half of their value so you had all these drivers who were on the hook for these seven-figure loans, and they had these medallions that were worth fractions of that. So I found those stories really compelling. And I thought, okay, well, I want basically an app developer. Um, What could his story be? And I thought, well, if that was his father, maybe he's trying to right a wrong, or at least that's the story that he's telling is, why should Uber and Lyft and people like that get to take down the, the taxi industry and further make people like his father more and more scarce. Maybe it should be the son of a taxi driver who gets to do something like that and who tries to incorporate taxi drivers into the business model rather than push them out. And so that's sort of his kind of idealistic uh, sales pitch uh, in his company.
1: Well, I've spent a lot of time in New York City, and I can remember when Uber and Lyft first began to take a chunk out of cabs businesses. But I can also remember when the cabs tried to fight back and created their own app which then never worked every time I tried it. Like, you know, you'd try to request a cab and you'd wait 20 minutes and no one would ever show up. So I thought this was such an interesting idea. And then of course, like I said, I just had read recently about Uber incorporating cabs into their app in the city. And I think it's something that obviously is on a lot of people's minds. And so I was glad that you had put it in your story.
2: Oh, great. Yeah, I think there it was a combination of that and just the way that the world started accelerating and, and getting rid of people whose jobs have been indispensable for so long. So, I liked a character who at least maintained that he wanted to try to protect those people.
1: Well, and I think between the iPhone's advent and then COVID, there are so many things that have changed dramatically in the last two years and then last 10 to 15 years. So, it's interesting when people are now starting to write stories about those things. Yeah, definitely. You have previously written for the big screen and the small screen, and you currently write for Your Honor, which is on Showtime. You've pivoted here to write a novel. How how are those similar and how are those different?
2: It's probably more similar to writing a TV show because a show, at least like Your Honor, is 10 episodes, and so the length is a bit more compatible. Uh, I found that to be the most daunting task of writing a novel is that it, it's far longer than a screenplay or an episode of television. so there's there's a lot more story and characters to keep in mind and and you can't read the entire thing in one sitting, which makes it more difficult to edit. But yeah, I obviously the other the other big difference is that you don't have the benefit of working with other writers and there's far fewer people to give you notes. So it's really it's fun and exciting to be able to kind of tell a story the way I wanted to tell it. Um, at the same time, without the benefit of other talented people, it's a bit daunting as well.
1: Do you find the writing itself to be pretty different? So, Since when you're writing for the screen, there's a lot of other things that are involved in the writing versus when you're writing a novel, it's not going to be viewed. It's just going to be read.
2: Yeah. I found it to be fairly similar with with the one big exception that there wasn't going to be anyone to complete the task for me. And and that I really had to think about, especially in in the description of things in the book, because it's so, it's so easy to be able to write a succinct sentence about what a setting looks like and then expect that a director and a production designer and a bunch of other talented people can make it real. But when it's just your words painting that picture, you have to really be careful and, and, and think it through and, and try to paint a vivid picture. But... Uh, Aside from that, it it actually wasn't all that different. I I wrote the book in in the first person and that felt very much like writing dialogue to me. So I enjoyed that a lot and it, it didn't feel all that different from screenwriting.
1: Did you plot the entire story out before you started or did things change as you wrote? What was that process like for you?
2: Yeah, I plotted it out. I'm a big outliner. And and as a screenwriter and television writer, um, outlines, you do outlines on everything, even if, even if that's not the way you write, and it is the way I write. But even if it's not, uh, there are people who are paying you who want to see outlines before they send you to script. So, it's very much my practice. And yeah, I... I, I I prefer to know where I'm going. I I try to be an efficient writer and I like to know what I'm going to be working on that day. And there's always a little bit of room for change, but um, I find it more exciting to be able to change when at least I have a plan in place ahead of time.
1: I'm always curious with thrillers, if the authors have laid out like exactly what's going to happen in the end, and here I have to be kind of careful how I word it with no spoilers, but that you're going to know exactly how the ending turns out. So, you did from the beginning, you knew what the the ending was going to be? I did. The
2: sort of final scene changed in its location and and sort of the the dynamics of it. But but I did know. I didn't know when I first conceived of the story. I actually, when I switched from patent law to criminal law, I, I asked myself, okay, well, who should get killed? And then I had my answer that I thought was the most compelling. And I said, okay, well, who killed him? And I, I went through all of the suspects in my mind and, and thought about it. And I thought, okay, who, who do I want it to be? And why do I want it to be? And yeah, there are, I think there are writers who sort of enjoy the mystery themselves. And they like writing their characters into a corner. And then they find it challenging and exciting to figure out how to get their characters out. I, I don't enjoy that. I like to plot everything. I like to, I, I like to plan it. I see it as a puzzle. And... I solve that puzzle usually in the outlining phase, and it makes the writing a lot easier.
1: I would certainly think so, because particularly in this genre, I think if you're just writing and not exactly knowing where you're going, that can be really difficult. And you may have to go back and edit and re-edit and re-edit if you keep changing your mind.
2: Yeah. And I, I looked back at all of my favorite legal thrillers and without question, I love the endings of all of them. And I feel that they're fulfilling and surprising and all the things that you would want. And there, there's not a one where it's like, a, it's, it's one of my favorite books or one of my favorite movies. The ending wasn't great I, and you never had that feeling. So, I, I knew it was really important and I wanted it to be one of those where you felt like you had a shot at guessing it when, when you were the
1: reader. But that it wasn't so obvious that the whole time you're thinking, oh, I already know who it is, and I'm going to get to the end and be like, okay, that's it.
2: Right, right. And I didn't want to have 20 red herrings. I I wanted it to feel more grounded. So there were a couple of people it could be, and there were good reasons why it could. and, And one by one, you'd check them off and then finally end up with the real killer.
1: Well, I thought it worked very well. Thank you. Who was the hardest character to write?
2: I mean, the main character was tricky because he, he, he's, he's on the pages so so much, but I would say his, his legal partner in this case, Layla Stills, um, was difficult because she's so different than I am uh, in many ways. So, I, I based her on a few different people that I know and respect and I, I tried to use them as a model because I, I knew at least I was familiar with them, but um, she's she's different than the main character and she needs to sort of challenge him, get in his way at times. And yet, I never wanted her to be anything but a formidable opponent for him and also someone that I respected the entire time.
1: Well, what about what your readers take away from the book?
2: I'm really excited to to find out what people start saying. Uh, I, I've had a few early reads, and that's, that's very interesting to see what, what people gravitate towards. But In particular, it is the characters that I want to know how people respond to them because I I genuinely like these characters. I I imagine that this could be a series. So, I wanted to create characters that I wanted to come back to and that I wanted to evolve and change. So, I I, I guess more than anything, I'm probably curious to hear what people think of James Euchre because there is a decent amount that's borrowed from my own life or at least my own imagination. And um, so, yeah. So, I think I'll take it rather personally how people see that character. (laughs)
1: Well, you just actually led me right into my next question, which I had posted on social media, and then I saw in one of your blurbs as well. Is it going to be a series?
2: Oh, I, I really hope so. One of the inspirations for this was that I had recently read the Lincoln Lawyer series, and I absolutely loved it. And I thought I wanted to create a character that could sustain multiple episodes and, and multiple cases. And And I, I th- hope I've done that with James.
1: I think you definitely have. And one thing I like to find is series where I feel like the protagonists are different, and the setting is different. And that's one thing about this one that I think you've got the perfect locale to continue writing great stories.
2: Yeah, I got very lucky on that, because obviously, I didn't invent it. And I didn't set the world of patent law there. It just happened. But it, it, was, it was nice. I'm from Arizona. So I'm slightly familiar with Texas, but I, I am not a Texan. But I felt that I could hopefully capture it authentically between my limited knowledge of Texas and then also coming from a small town in the Southwest. I think there were enough similarities that hopefully it feels true.
1: Absolutely. What surprised you the most about the whole patent law arena?
2: It was honestly the the reluctance for people in the Eastern District to talk about it. I, I met with a lot of people. Everyone was really, really pleasant and polite. And Yet, when I went there, I, you could, I just had this... It, it was just tinged with secrecy. People didn't want to talk about what they did. They were very skeptical of why I was there. Um, there's this whole issue called patent trolling, which is basically where people usually... Lawyers buy up patents that nobody is using for the sole purpose of suing companies for patent infringement. And it's largely seen as just sort of a, a really negative thing for society. And, and when people like John Oliver or NPR covers this town, that that's usually what their focus is. So, my first kind of objective was to settle people down and let them know that wasn't what I was focused on. Not that I'll never write about it because it is fascinating. And I think it's worthy of some story and certainly some criticism. But first and foremost, I wanted to write about, I wanted a character who loved what he did and was passionate about it. And when the people I spoke with did open up and felt comfortable with me. That, that, that kind of enthusiasm was really contagious. They, they were happy to be trial lawyers. They loved what they did. They loved that this was a special place. So I wanted to capture that.
1: Well, and it's such an interesting concept because it is a small town in East Texas, and you're bringing in all of these corporations and their representatives from all over. And there's got to be a bit of a disconnect there between the people on the jury and and these corporate representatives. And you talk about that and really needing local councils so that there's somebody to kind of connect up the corporations and help them relay their story to these people in Marshall.
2: Yeah, you would know better than than I do. But I know that local represent or local council is a thing that happens anytime you have out of state counsel come into a new venue where they're not where they haven't passed the bar, they're not they're not licensed to practice law. But I don't think that in most circumstances, the local council does a whole lot more than just sort of vouch for the out-of-state counsel and then help out quietly behind the scenes if they need to. And that's actually how it was with with patent law in East Texas for a long time. And then the more these out-of-town legal teams started using, usually men, but these guys, uh, these local counsel, the more they saw that they were really successful at, at talking to the juries. So, they would do openings, they'd do closings, they'd, they'd do a little bit of, of witnesses but that it was really important, especially with something as, as complicated as intellectual property law. When I was there, I, I, I got to sit in on a case and they did, it, w- it was all about the design of an airplane bathroom and whether or not one airplane manufacturer had stolen this design from another. But I mean, it can get far more complicated into the most, you know, electrical engineering and, and, and designs and pharmaceuticals and sciences. And, and. Then you just have eight normal human beings sitting on the jury who have to decide whether you know patent A infringes on patent B and, and it, you, you, who has the expertise to really make that determination. So a lot of the time, it just comes down to how well the lawyers can communicate with their audience.
1: And feel like they're talking to some of their own people. And I think that you really conveyed that aspect of it in the book, that they want familiar faces and people that they understand and feel comfortable with.
2: Yeah. And, and some of the local counsel that I talked to, one of the things that they were sort of most amused by was how out-of-town lawyers would attempt to do that and they'd fail um, spectacularly at it. And so, it was the idea that you'd have a bunch of lawyers from New York come into Texas and think, well, let's put on a little folksy attitude and charm and, and that'll ingratiate uh, us to the, to the jurors. And that obviously doesn't work. People can spot phoniness from a mile away. And yeah, so they, they did so uh, to their own detriment a lot. But yeah, they they talked a lot about just, the, just understanding what makes these sort of modest jurors tick and the idea that comparing kind of intellectual property to actual property and to things that people understand, that we all understand what it's like to own something and have it taken from us or to have it devalued or small things like that. And if you can actually make that equation and do it in a sincere way, you can tap into people's emotions when you need to the most.
1: And that really resonated with me with your book in terms of that that was the important aspect of those local councils, because you're right about local council most of the time is just to make sure you're following the correct laws in the state, advise and vouch for the people that are coming from out of state. So it was an interesting and different role for a local council. And I really enjoyed that. So I do hope it will become a series. So do I. (laughs) Well, and I always love to talk about both titles and covers, and I think your cover is really, really cool. Do you just love it?
2: I love it so much. I feel like I got so lucky. I had a very brief conversation with my editor, Rob Bloom at Doubleday, and he asked what I, what I envisioned for the cover, and he told me what he did, and it was almost the same, which was we had really nothing more than just saying this truck that James refers to in, in his favorite closing argument, and this beautiful old historic um, courthouse in Marshall, Texas. And then Michael Windsor, the art director, just created this beautiful cover that I don't even think was touched. He just sent it in and I looked at it and I thought, wow, this is incredible. I'm so happy because I don't know if writers get a lot of input or not, but this one didn't need any of my input. It was perfect.
1: Well, you know, Texas is known for all of its beautiful courthouses. And that's one of my favorite things to do when we go through smaller towns is to Mm -hmm. check out the local courthouse. So I just thought it was fabulous with all of the discussion, obviously, of issues related to legal issues in your book, that the courthouse was front and center, and then obviously the truck, as you mentioned.
2: Yeah, the, I mean, this, this whole courthouse area is so interesting in Marshall, because there are three courthouses that, are, that all face each other. And this this old historic one looks like a Capitol building, and it's a gorgeous building. I think it's mainly a museum now, and then there's this the Eastern District of Texas, which is one of the most important courthouses in the country when it comes to intellectual property law. and it sort of just looks like a post office. like it's very <laughs> it's very modest and you could just walk by it and you wouldn't you wouldn't even think that something incredibly important happens inside. So I, I love that the two of these buildings were so close to each other and look so different
1: and you talk about that in the book as well. I have to get over to Marshall so I can actually see all of it versus just envision it.
2: Yeah, it's a beautiful place. And, and that that I took a lot of photos of that courthouse. And, and I mean, the courthouse, as I said, is a museum now. And I realized that the trial that I wanted couldn't actually happen in there. But I decided to fudge it a little bit and try to come up with a reason why they would open this courthouse for this one one murder trial, because the setting is just too beautiful to uh, to
1: pass. Absolutely. And like I said, Texas just has one beautiful courthouse after another. And so many of them are set around the square with the courthouse being the center focus. It's just really neat to, to see them when you're out and about.
2: Yeah, I would love to travel the state and see more.
1: Well, what about what you have read lately that you really liked?
2: Um, I read Bathhouse by P.J. Vernon, who I, I was put in touch with because my editor is his editor as well. And that was a thriller that I absolutely loved. I am working with a guy named John Mankowitz, and his father wrote a book a long time ago called Trial. And so I'm in the middle of that right now because I like to read old legal thrillers and see how it was done 50, 60, 70 years ago. And then next on my list is the Paris Bookseller because I was listening to your podcast and you had Carrie Mayer on and it sounded incredible. So I can't wait to read that one too.
1: She has been on this really cool European tour recently. It's all on her Instagram where she went to Shakespeare and Company in Paris. And then I think she's been... Maybe in Poland? I can't remember, but she's been going to various European cities on a book tour for the Paris Bookseller. Wow. Yeah,
2: no disrespect to Marshall, Texas, but I should probably set something in Paris because that sounds incredible.
1: Yes, the local can travel to Paris for one of his patent cases, right? Might have to
2: do that. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Well, Joey, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I loved The Local and I can't wait for everybody else to get to read it.
2: Thank you so much for having me on. It was my pleasure. Don't you know
3: that